Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is probably one of the most well-known stories, of course, in the Gospel of John. It's the Christ encounter with Nicodemus, who later on becomes a believer. It said, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, what immediately distanced Nicodemus from the rest of the Pharisees? He didn't think Jesus was Satan. Yeah, at least he figured out where the miracles were coming from. Right? He's a step up on them. Um, and why do you think he comes at night? Well, you know, he's a ruler of the Jews. So where does that place him? Yeah, I mean, in fact, he was, I think he's a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling 70. I mean, he's pretty well up there, you know. And, of course, Jesus has got a bad name among the average Pharisee, but he wants to talk to Jesus. So he comes to him at night um, when nobody's looking, and, and, and you say, well, you know, didn't he have any courage to come to him? Then? Well, I'll tell you what, he had more courage than most of the others. I mean, people like to rag on Peter, right? I mean, Peter, get out of the boat, walk on the water, and then you get all worried and start to sink. What's wrong with you? Well, what about the other 11 guys that not didn't get out of the boat? Yeah, I mean, at least Peter had the courage. Now, how many of us would have gotten out and walked on the water? Yeah, let's not rag on Peter too much, right? Because we would have probably done the same thing. The point is, Nicodemus was a, was a honest seeker. He wanted to find out what is this. And, and he, he calls him rabbi. That's a, that's a term of honor, teacher. And this is a rule of the Jew. For a rule of the Jews to call somebody rabbi, that, that was a pretty, that was a pretty, that's like a, you know, one of the professors at college coming up and respectfully asking you a question. They just don't do that. They're, they know all the answers to everything. And I remember working there and I have a PhD in ancient Egyptian. You know, I can tell you how to write your computer program. Right, fine, okay. You know what I mean. They're experts on everything. Because they got a PhD over here, they know it all. And everybody else is a moron. Um, this guy showed Christ respect. He showed him deference. And even though in the social scheme of things of the day, Nicodemus was up here and Christ was down here, when Nicodemus met Christ, he gave him a title of honor. Rabbi, teacher, we know. Now, it's interesting, said, who do you think he, he, he means when he says, we know? Maybe it's a segment of the Sanhedrin that kind of believed what they were seeing. It could be a part of the Sanhedrin. It could be a, a, a sort of a editorial we. I think, I think a lot of the Pharisees deep down knew knew that this was from God, but they dared not say it, and they didn't want to believe it, and so their refusal to believe became unbelief, a refusal to believe. you got to understand, what, what's the opposite of faith? Unbelief. Not doubt. Doubt's in between. 
The opposite of faith is unbelief. What does faith say? Faith says, I believe it even though I don't see it. Unbelief says, I won't believe it even if I see it. Doubt says, I'm not sure. And what happens is, if you don't, and, and this is very important here. If you don't, if, if, in, if when you're confronted with the claims of Christ in the New Testament, when people are confronted with the claims of Christ, if they don't move towards belief, what will they move towards? Unbelief. Alright? you got to theologically get your hand around that, head around that. You don't stay in the middle. You don't stay uncommitted. You're going to go towards belief or you're going to go towards unbelief. And if you go towards unbelief, what may happen? Well, you may believe in something else, but what may eventually happen? God will leave you there. And you may live for another 50, 60, 70 years. You know there are people today that will never be saved? You say, wait a minute, whoa, wait, wait, I thought God could save anyone. Well, sure he can. God can do what he wants. We know that. But in individual cases, there may be people that said no to God for the last time, and God says, fine, I'll leave you alone. I won't bother you anymore. And you might live another 50 or 60 years. You might live a long time. But never again will you ever have any desire for spiritual things. God's Spirit will leave you alone. And if you don't move towards belief, you'll move towards unbelief. And when these Pharisees, initially, evidently here, there's a group of them that knew, when they really thought clearly about it in the dark of night, they knew who Jesus was. But because they did not, as Nicodemus did, move towards belief, eventually their, their belief turned to, or what little belief they had, turned to unbelief, a refusal to believe. A refusal to believe. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now why does Christ ask him this? Or tell him this? By the way, was this the entire conversation between Christ and Nicodemus? Probably not. They probably talked a little bit more than this, but this is the important part of it. So what's Christ telling him here? His need. Yeah. And why does Christ why is Christ giving him this answer? Well, remember the last part of two twenty eight. He knew it was in the heart of man. Two twenty five. He knew it was in their heart. He's answering the real question that Nicodemus is wanting to ask him, but didn't ask him yet. Right? Nicodemus is warming Christ up a little bit, and Christ just goes beyond that and say, okay, here's the real answer to what you're asking me. How can you be right with God? Because that's what really Nicodemus is after. What's the message? How can I be right with God? Because evidently you are, because you're doing these miracles. So evidently you know something that I don't know. And so Christ goes right at that and says, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? To the Jew, what would the kingdom of God be? The kingdom established on earth. The millennium, the kingdom, God's righteous rule, that sphere. 
if you're not born again, you can't even see that. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? He's confused. You must be born again. Wait a minute, I was already born. How can I be a born again? Now, some have, now, there's two ways to possibly read this. One, he's actually confused by what Christ is saying, thinking he has to be physically born again. Or it could be he's being somewhat sarcastic. How can you be born again? How can you enter your mother's womb and be born again? Which do you think it is? I would say it's confusion leading to the latter. Don't you think in that statement in verse 3, Christ is telling him until you're born again, you can't understand the spiritual things of God. That's what Christ is telling him, and he's trying to process, what do you mean born again? In the physical realm of his right. mind. So he hasn't got to that place where no. he's born again. He's thinking everything from the physical right. perspective. So he's understanding everything from the physical that Christ is trying to tell him in the spiritual. Right. And Christ has got to make the bridge between the physical to the spiritual. And it could be that not only is he confused, but there is a little bit of, like, what do you mean born again? How can you be born again? How can you again in your mother's womb and be born again? I'm a grown man for crying out loud. You know? And it may be that, that he's, he's being a little... Yeah, what? <laughs> you know? Um, I believe it's confusion more because of the second question he asked. I think he is confused. I think there is confusion. When he says, how can these things be? Because I think at that point, he's like willing to listen. He is willing to listen. And he's confused. And he's, you know, how can I, how can this... I think there may be a little, I mean, yeah, there may be a little hint of, and when I say sarcasm, I don't mean dripping with sarcasm. I'm not talking about that, but it's sort of like, what do you mean? <laughs> Born again? I'm I'm an old guy, you know. I'm 35 years old. What, what do you? What? How can you do that? Yeah. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this has caused all kinds of interpretation. All right. Yeah, uh, some have said, well, you know, let's refer to baptism. Okay, now you're the baptism regeneration crowd. And I don't think you want to go down that road. All right. Some say, well, this is referring, you know, the baptism by water is physical birth, and by the Spirit is physical, is spiritual birth. I mean, that's a very popular view. Because, um, you know, the breaking of the water when in birth and... You understand, all that imagery came much later than this. That's not how he would have understood it. How would he have understood Christ's statement? He is a ruler of the Jews. As a ruler of the Jews, he knows the law inside out, upside down, backwards, forwards. How would he have understood this? Because water is key for purification. Purification. And what, what is seen as water in the Old Testament? Well, cleansing, but... The Old Testament, the Word of God. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, he talks about the Word of God being water which washes. 
all right, that brings life. That and and, and see this 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 is the task of the Bible student. This is what you need to do is about, and this is the hardest thing. If you can figure this out, you've got it made when it comes to the scripture and interpretation. Do not read your understanding, your scientific thought, your worldview into this. Get rid of that. Go back and pretend you're this guy listening to Jesus. How would you have understood it? Don't, you know, and that's, that's when we, you know, talked early on. Don't read some mystical, theological, weird mumbo jumbo in that. That's not, how would you have understood if it, had you been Nicodemus standing there listening to Jesus talk here, how would you have understood what he said when he said, you must be born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And, and for example, I'll read my authorized MacArthur study Bible note, all right, on this verse. Jesus referred not to literal water here, but to the, for the need for cleansing. For example, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. When water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, habitually refers to renewal or spiritual cleansing, especially when used in conjunction with spirit. Numbers 19, Psalm 51, Isaiah 32, 44, 55, Jeremiah 2.13, Joel 2.28. So Christ is referring to spiritual washing or purification of the soul accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about physical birth. So when you're looking at the Old Testament from uh, Nicodemus' perspective, he's seeing the, the physical aspect of the Old Testament laws in the purification process? Yeah, and, and, and again, figuratively, when it talks about water and the Spirit in the Old Testament, it's talking about the cleansing work of the Word of God in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. That's how you've understood it. Christ is bringing it from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. No, I'm not talking about going into your mother's womb. I'm talking about being born again by the water and the Word and the Holy Spirit who cleanses and the Word of God brings cleansing alright and that's what he's talking about here and when you go back and read rabbinical literature they understood this imagery they understood this that's how they understood it and that's the that's the task of the Bible student get rid of your modern medical viewpoint of this and just go back and how would Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews an expert in the Old Testament scripture how did he understood what Christ was saying and that's what Christ is hitting at here. And don't marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if you're not a Calvinist, all five points, you're not going to understand this verse. I did? I'm sorry, that was born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's trying to make a difference. I'm not talking about the flesh birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. Okay? Now, what is Christ saying at here? What's he talking about the wind? What, 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 what imagery is he trying to capture with the wind analogy here? Okay, the spirit and the wind. By the way, pneuma is the word for, Greek word for spirit where we get pneumatic wind. So spirit and wind are synonymous in the Greek text. All right. Um, what's the what imagery of wind is he trying to get at here? What's he saying about wind? Nobody controls it. Nobody controls it. 
Yeah, you can see it, but you can't see it. Do you see the wind blowing? You see the effect. No, what do you see? Trees moving, you hear the sound, but you don't see it moving. And so, how is that like the Holy Spirit? Do you see the Holy Spirit? But what do you see? The effects of the Holy Spirit. The effects He does. Alright, so the analogy he's drawing here between wind and spirit is that you don't see either one, but you know they're there because of the effect that they have. Right? That's how you see it. And you can't tell where it goes, where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the spirit. Okay? You must be born again. Now here's a question. Link this into what we talked about last week in John 1. How many of you in here decided when you would be born? You didn't, right? You were not you know, comfortable in your mother's womb and say, ah, oh, you know, it's time to get out of here and go off into the big bad world. You had no choice over your birth, did you? Do you have a choice over your spiritual birth? No, you don't. No, you don't. That's the analogy Christ is bringing out here. Nicodemus, how do you know you're born again? You see the effect, but you don't come up with that. Remember earlier on, he said, who were born again, verse John, John 1, were born again not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, nor of blood, but of the will of God. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. How can you be born again? It is a work of the Holy Spirit who does it when he does it. And immediately everybody said, well, that's not fair. What about this belief business? What about me having to believe? What does it say repent and all that? Well, you know, why do you repent and why do you believe? Because you're born again. <laughs> That's why. You're born again. And what's the first thing you do when you're born again? You understand. You believe. You repent. You exercise faith. Not your faith, but the faith that God gives you. It's all of God, folks. It, it, just get over it. It's all of God. It's not you. It really isn't you. And Christ is telling Nicodemus, how do you know you're born again? It just happens. Now later on we understand there's a faith component, but that faith component always comes after you being born again. It always comes afterwards. Folks, I don't know how else to interpret John. I don't know how else to interpret. And, not only, and, and it fits in because in John chapter 6, what is Christ saying? Christ says in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So what's that? That's divine election. And then it says, whoever believes on me, I will raise him up at the last day. What's that? Human will. Well, which is it? Well, it's both, but it's, you know, God chose you, but you believe in time, but you believe because God chose you. And then he says, no man come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Folks, it's all of God. 
you know, you think about the divine election, and it, it is hard to understand because, you know, I believe God has all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, so from, he knows the end from the beginning. You know, there's nothing that, you know, we can say that God does not know, so he knows who's going to be saved to it. He knew that from the very foundations of the earth. And he knew it because he chose them. And he chose, and this is the problem that I have dealing with that issue, because the Bible says that, you know, that God would that none would perish. So it's God's will that no one goes to hell. And what, where I have a hard time getting all those things in alignment and agreement is God made hell. We know God made everything. So right. he made hell as bad as hell is for a specific reason for all those that reject him. Okay, then you talk about divine election. And he doesn't want anyone to go to hell, and yet he decides who's going to go to heaven. And in essence, when he decides who's going to heaven... He's deciding who's going to hell. This is just my question. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking out loud. That's fine. And the hard time, now this is the hard time I have grasping all of that. He is a just God. All of his ways are just. Mm -hmm. Now he has the power to do anything that he wants. Right. So when you think about the, the severity of hell and the wondrous glory of heaven and that divine election why wouldn't God decide just to save everybody? And if he decided that not everybody was going to be saved, then why not let all of those that would not be saved die before they reach the age of accountability? And when you're talking about election, and I'm just thinking about the character of God that I have learned mm -hmm. over the years, and that he's just, <coughs> how can God choose one person and not another, except I know he has the power to yeah. do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. And yet we're looking at his just his just side of him and that election. That's that's the area that I have a hard time coming to grips with. And because I, I can say God knows who's going to mm -hmm. be saved. And I have no problem with that because right. I believe that. Mm -hmm. That's prescient foreknowledge. mercy on me. And somehow I can't explain how all that came to my life. Well, nobody really can explain it. And... And I feel very mm -hmm. grateful and thankful for that. And yet at the same time, when we say, and I know some people are not going to be saved, but it seems like those that are not going to be saved that have that disbelief in part of their character, and I don't know if that was always there, or when, when they, how that got there, if God put it there, you know, I don't understand all of that. There's a lot of mystery to this. There's a lot of mystery. But I think one of the things in, you know, We've sorted it out while well, we've had long discussions. Most everybody in here, we've, we've talked through it at different times. We've got to make sure that we do not bring our definition of things onto God. You know, one of the things I see you struggling with is, well, if God is just, how can he do that? All right. Well, I'm just using his, his yeah. I'm just looking God. at something that it would look like an injustice. And yeah. I know that God is yeah. just. And, 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 so, and so the thing we need to be careful for, from, and I think you've, you've, you've gotten there, although you, reluctantly, but you've gotten there, is that I know what God does by definition is just. Yes. So the fact that he does it, it's just. I don't understand why it's just, but it is just. It doesn't look just to me. And that's one of the big arguments. Well, how can a just God do that? Well, the answer is a just God should send us all to hell. 
I mean, that's justice. You want God to be just, the whole lot, you know, all of humanity, every last human being, they go to hell. So it's not God's judgment, justice that's in seen here, it's his mercy. Why did God... And there's no other way to interpret that other than just what it says. And all I know, and in my own personal, for whatever reason, in eternity past, God chose me, not because I would choose him. That's something we've got to be careful of. Well, God chose me because he knew I would choose him. Well, then who's sovereign in your salvation, God or you? Well, you are. Because <laughs> God only reacted because you, he knew you would do something. Therefore, he, no, that doesn't work that way. God chose you. And, and the Bible teaches that unless God transforms you, no one ever, period, no one will choose God. That's what Romans 3 says. They're all gone out of the way. They're together kind of unprofitable. There's none that does good, not even one. No one see. Does anybody seek God for who God is? Do you want peace, happiness, joy, heaven? But do you really want God for who God is? Does the average pagan on the street want God for who God is? No, they don't. They have no inclination towards God. Unless God draws them, they will never respond. And, and, and that's hard for us to believe and understand. What's relationship to Joshua's declaration to the Israelites? You know, I put before you life and death. Because the Bible always sees things from two vantage points, two perspectives. And our perspective is not to get a copy of the book of life and preach to the elect. God's not giving us a copy of the book of life. God knows who are his. Our job is to do what God told us, and that is tell everyone. Who's going to respond? Well, the elect will respond. But we tell them all. And there, there is a... There, there's a, a sort of a uh, an incongruity there in our own minds because we can't put those two things together. We're not supposed to put them together because we're created human beings and God is infinite. You're not going to figure it out. You know, we preach a salvation message. You preach it to whosoever will. You do. And you don't worry about but elect you, or not elect. When you think about the elect, though, in essence, if a preacher gets up and preaches that message, you know, he tells everyone, if you're here tonight, you know, you come to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Is that a true statement? That is a true statement. But the reality of election is this. Only the elect Only will remove. So he could really yep. say this from the pulpit and be biblically correct. I hope tonight when I preach this message that there's someone here that is part of that elect. Yep. That today will be the day that their election comes to reality in their life. Mm -hmm. But the elect also have free will to choose. No, they don't. Don't use free will. You don't have a free will. None of us have a free will. We don't. We have a will. No, we have a will. We can make choices, right? But do you have a free will? You don't have a free will. Your will is bounded by what? By your nature. What you are. That's the choices you have set before you. Your, na your, your nature, what you are, defines what your choices are. As a fallen, reprobate human being, what choices do you have before you? You don't have them all, right? You can't decide, I'm going to do the right thing for the right reason and please God. You can't do that. It's impossible to do that. As a, you can't. You, 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 it's not within your ability to do that. 
You have choices, and God holds you responsible for those choices, absolutely, but you don't have all choices available to you. You, you don't. Your will is bounded by what you are. That's what it is. You know, I look at people, you know, you see people get in, entrapped in some heinous sins and things like that, and you say, how can they do that? Well, they're bound, right, by their choices. You can be out of the will of God, though. Oh yeah, you can you can you can be disobedient, absolutely. But what you need to do, and, and this is a struggle I know a lot of people have, you gotta allow the paradox to exist. And don't try to sort it out and make it all fit in your mind, because it isn't gonna work. Because we can't fathom the mind of God. It's and on some of this we've got to just take God's word for it. You know? God says I chose you before the foundation of the world. Okay, I don't understand that, but it says he did, so I'll take him his word for that. You know? And, 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 yes, and what, what makes me, and I'm, I'm serious about this, what makes me stay up at night and in awe, in absolute awe, is why would God ever choose me? And when, I, and when I stop and think that had God not chosen me, I would never choose him. I would have no desire for him. I wouldn't even know who he would be. That just, I don't know, my mind can't even process that. I can't, I can't even process that. I, I can't fathom that. And I think I'm going to spend all of eternity trying to figure that out and really not get a whole lot of way on it because it is it is God's mercy and grace and I'm telling you folks if God not chosen me there's no way I would ever choose him I have no desire to God did the work and and that's why he gets the glory and that's why he gets the honor you know and that's why I can't lose it how can I lose something that I didn't work to get right and, and Romans 8 says, my, my glorification, future glorification, was not determined at the moment of my salvation. Rather, it was determined in eternity past when God chose me. God did not choose that I would get saved. God choose, chose that I would be glorified in heaven with him in eternity future. And the salvation and justification is a step along the way. But that's not the end point. We think of election, well, that just means God elected you to be saved. No, he didn't. He elected you to be glorified. Your salvation is a step in the process. But God chose you, and that's what blows my mind. Before time began, God chose me to be with him in eternity and to enjoy fellowship with him, and I can't get over that. I can't get over it. Let me ask you this. Do you believe... It would be simple to actually be questioning that field. I mean, God, you must have made a mistake, God. <laughs> you know, when you're, you're questioning this. No, I don't think it's a mistake at all. Because I, I often ask God, why, yeah, why did you choose me? I mean, I wouldn't have chose me. I'm telling you, made a mistake. No, I can't do that. Well, there's a part of you that, and I think that's part of, when, when you really grasp that, when you really get your head around that, concept that it wasn't you God really begins to shine right 
because there's a part of us, deep down inside, every one of us sitting here, there's a little piece of us that would like to say, I'm, I deserve heaven because I chose God, and I believe, and I did whatever it is. No, 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 no. That, that's the flesh coming in. And see, that, that's, that was the difference between the Israelites, who, the Pharisees who believed God owed them heaven. I mean, for crying out loud, I kept the law and I did the alms. God owes me on this one. God doesn't owe you. Get over it. God does not owe you the next breath. God does not owe you nothing. He owes you hell. That's what he owes you. And anything above that is gravy. And when you get, when you understand that, you know, it really puts things into perspective. And it really gives you an appreciation and a love for God that you pay, and you're not going to want to sin. Who would want to sin when, you, when they realize what God has done for them? Who wants to go out and commit sin now? You want to do that? I mean, He died for you. He chose you. He, he gave you privilege. And you want to just go out and sin because it doesn't matter now? <coughs> not the true believer. And yet, throughout the Bible, and, and you hit this, Paul preached whosoever will. And what did Christ say? If any man thirst. That was a bona fide offer, but who's going to respond? The elect. But we don't worry. We, and, and that's the thing we got to do. We can't focus on trying to sort out who the elect are and who aren't. We preach to everyone. We, and we say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Who's going to believe? The elect are going to believe. But we don't worry about the elect. We don't worry whether they're elect or not. And we don't know if they're not. All we can do is preach. Christ knew who was in and who wasn't. He, he could tell. I can't. And you got to let that... I don't, and, and, and again, we're going we're gonna to really hit this in John 6, because I think John 6 is the passage that will really sort it out in your head, as far as it can be sorted out. John 6 really brings... Christ himself is giving you the doctrine of election and saying, they're clearly there, all that the Father gave to me will come to me. I was given to Christ in eternity past by the Father. And I'm going to come to Christ. Is grace irresistible? Absolutely it is for the elect. If you are elect, you cannot but believe. But you're also going to want to believe. You say, well, what about those people that want to believe but they can't? No, they don't. there is no such thing. Nobody really wants to be a Christian and God says, no, you're not one of the elect, you're out, go away. You might want what God gives. You might want peace, happiness, joy. You know, like these people here, the goodies, you know, they saw the miracles and, you know, the bread and all of that. And you, you think, wow, they're going to follow Christ. When it came right down to it, they were not disciples. They did not want Christ on his terms. They wanted him on their terms. And that's what people, people want God, and that's why you got to be very careful when you present the gospel. Don't present the gospels, come to Jesus and life will be a bed of roses. It may not be, it may be a bed of thorns. You don't come to God for what you get out of it, you come to God because he's demanded that you repent and you see your sin and you're broken over your sin and rebellion and you come in repentance. You don't come to God, to, that's the TV boys on TBN. Come to Jesus and it'll make you healthy.
as far as I can remember, I always wanted to release. I always had wanted to. I was something. I always, you know. And what happened one day? I, I just, <laughs> the spirit had its way with me. You didn't wake up and say, ah, I think I'll be a Christian today. I think I'll believe. Doesn't happen that way. Any more than a baby says, ah, I think I'll be born today. I think that today's it. Today's my birthday. You didn't decide that. God was drawing you. And then all of a sudden, every one of us, there came a point when all of a sudden, the light goes on. All of a sudden, you understand. And what's the first thing you do? I believe. I repent. I understand. I can respond in faith. Why can you respond in faith? Because God gave you the faith. I was thinking of my back, background life. Uh huh. Yeah. When I was teen, twenty generation, forty generation. So I understand how God takes care of me. See, I grew up, I always, I always believed in God I grew up in a Christian home. I always believed in Jesus. I always believed in God. But one day I remember the light went on. And I understood it. I mean, I had heard it. I heard the words. I knew the words. I knew the phrases. But all of a sudden, one day, it made sense. It, wow. And that was the day I was born again. The light went on. I saw. And what did I do? I immediately responded in faith and asked Jesus to be my Savior. And I didn't understand all of that meant. And, and by the way, just understand something here. You don't need a degree in theology to be saved. You know, we try to, you know, you don't need to give people a big theological background. When the time comes for them to believe, it happens just like a baby. When that baby comes, it comes. And when the time comes for them to be born again, they're born again of the Spirit. Boom, life is there. And they believe and respond. Sometimes I love my daughter, you know. I always read Bible. Oh, I know Bible. I know truth. You know, I'm the believer. But sometimes I'm arrogant. But someday my daughter tell me, Daddy, how many times do you go out you and the mommy together outside dinner? Oh, six months ago. You're not Christian, my daughter said. <laughs> impact me. You know? mm -hmm. So I learned. Oh, wow. Yeah, my daughter, yes, you're right, you know. And then I take it the same week, you know, I take it out so we can be in it together. Sometimes I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. I think all of us in here, you know, all of us have different backgrounds. But think back to the time when you were born again. The light went on. I mean, you'd heard the gospel, you'd heard it, you heard it, you heard it. You could repeat it, but one day all of a sudden, boom, it makes sense. I get it. It's like I read the Bible with a new brain. Yeah. It, what is that? That's, re, that's called regeneration. And that's a work of the Spirit. And there may be, like, a, like you said, a seeking and a longing, but until the regeneration comes, it's not fulfilled. And God does the drawing, right? God draws. But then, when I did get saved, I understood why I was feeling like that. Because mm -hmm. I knew that wasn't really me. Right. It's regeneration. And that's what Christ is telling Nicodemus here. You must be 
born again. How are you born again? Well, the Spirit does it. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, well, you're a teacher of Israel. Don't you know this? You're supposed to be the expert. You're the one that's supposed to know the law. You haven't figured this out? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What's he saying? You know, we know what we know from our experiences, from our understanding. And if I can't get you to understand earthly things, how can you understand if I tell you heavenly things? And he's, bring, he's, he's getting him to, to make the split between the physical and the heavenly. And the question is, how can you know heavenly things? What's the answer? The Spirit. The spirit. <laughs> if it's not the Spirit, you're not going to figure it out, right? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, was in heaven. How do you know what God wants? How do you know who God is? God has to take the initiative, right? Yes. God is outside the boundaries of space and time, right? So can we figure God out? Not at all. We're out. Remember I drew the box. We're in the box. We're in the universe. We're in creation. God's outside the box. How can anything inside the box understand what's outside it? You can't. The only way you can understand what's outside the box is that which is outside the box needs to come in the box and tell you about it. And that's what Christ did. You want to know what God's like? Christ came into the box, into time, in the flesh, and told us. It is a supernatural act. How do you know what God wants? God has to take the initiative. Always has to take the initiative. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's this, of course, in reference to? Crucifixion. He's talking about what, may, what the basis. And again, we got to understand, this is an encapsulation of the discussion. There's probably more things they talked about. We're getting a high point, so that's why it's hard for us to follow it sometimes. But Christ is saying, as the serpent was lifted up, now, what, remember what happened with the, with the, with the serpent. Remember that? Yeah, they, he sent serpents in to bite the people, and, and they were dying. And how is it eventually stopped? He made a brass and held it up, and what did you have to do? Just have to look at it. Had to look at it. And what is Christ saying here? I must be lifted up. Of course, obviously a reference to his crucifixion. But you have to look at him. Now, you've got to understand something about regeneration, about election here. Okay? This is an important thing, too, while we're still beating on the horse here. A person is not elect. They die. They wind up in heaven and wonder how they got there. Where there's election, what is there also? Salvation. There's salvation, but what else is there from the ear perspective? You believe. You believe. You you respond. You know, there's there's no surprise. Elect people showing up. How did I get here? Well, you're one of the elect. You made it, man. Wonderful. You know, 
you think of relationship too because yeah you know the last thing he tells everyone that don't make heaven is depart from me i never knew you right it's a relationship and, and what it is is where there is election there's always faith not your faith but the person believes both of those are inextricably combined you will not have election without belief you won't have true belief without election both of them go hand in hand all right and what Christ is bringing out here he's bringing the second part in yeah you must be born again that's a work of the spirit but from the human perspective what do you do you look and live you believe and that's why from the human perspective when we preach we don't have to worry about well I'm gonna ask the elect to come forward tonight don't worry about that <coughs> just say whosoever wants to believe and you know what who will come forward the elect now there are some tares that come forward too right and how we eventually sort them out by their fruit you will know them but don't worry about elect or not elect do you believe and by the way let's understand this whether you want to believe in election or not or prescient foreknowledge that God just knew you'd believe and therefore he elected you whatever flavor you do what is common among all of those approaches how who goes to heaven people who are saved. saved but what do they do they believe right I'm a, I, I'm a five-point dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist and I believe that you need to believe if you don't believe you don't go to heaven I don't care if you're elect or not you have to believe <laughs> If you're a rank Arminian, what is it? You've got to believe. So from the human perspective, don't worry about the election business. Just believe. And that's what Christ is bringing to him now. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent, you look and you believe. Even so must I be lifted up. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now this is true belief. Remember, there's belief and then there's believe alright this is true belief you have to look at Jesus and that's why it's important I really think it's important getting off on a couple of rabbit trails here but we'll get through this chapter come no matter what but but when you present the gospel don't worry about this, this is a real thing the problem we have sometimes we present the gospel we want to leave out the tough parts because we're afraid if we put them in, they're not going to believe. Well, you know what? If they're not elect, they're not going to believe. And you know what? If they're elect, what will happen? It doesn't matter what you say, they will believe. You'll say, if you come to Christ right now, tonight, and you believe in Him, we're going to take you out back and shoot you. If you're elect, you're going to go forward. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And if you're not elect, you're not going to go forward. Look, and, and that's one of the things, that's why election is such a good doctrine to get a hold on. Because you know what, it's not your fault if somebody doesn't believe. But you know what, it's not to your credit that somebody does. That's true. And a lot of people say, well, you know, you know, if I only preach, you know, I should have preached to my, you know, son. If I would preach to my son, he would be saved, but he's not saved now. No. If he's not saved, it's because he's not elect. It has nothing. Now, we are responsible to do what God's called us to do. It's obedience. 
But you know what? I'm not. God's not going to look and say, you know, Alan, it's your fault that that guy didn't go to hell, hell, heaven because when you passed him in Sears, you didn't give him a gospel tract. It's all your fault. No, that's not going to happen. I'm responsible to be light and I'm responsible to be a witness, but it's not my fault that somebody believes. It's not my fault that they don't believe. It is my fault if I don't do what God told me, and that is present the gospel. But you know what? If somebody's elected and I don't present the gospel to them, someone else will. But if you bring a sinner to repentance, then there, there's, the, um, there's that verse that says uh, that it covers much of... There's joy. There's joy. Yeah. There is joy. There's a blessing to you. That's John. End of John. First John. Um, you know, you know, one of the problems with, with elections sometimes is we get some, well, you know, if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. So, yeah, Rick Kesey, whatever will be, will be, whether it is or isn't. You know, that's one of his great things. And it's like, that's not, that's a fatalistic view of things. Paul said, I persuade men. He didn't, he, I mean, Paul believed in an election, but he did not believe, well, you know, I'll just go into Athens and sit around and wait for the elect to come to me and ask me to be saved. You know, he, he preached the gospel. Well, the Bible says it's the washing that sounds the alarm that the blood of the people will be on him when the enemy comes. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, uh, you know, when we preach the gospel, in some respects, we're actually relieving responsibility for ourselves. Um, there are some that, t and that's the Ezekiel passage. The problem with the Ezekiel passage is God telling Ezekiel specifically as his prophet, if you don't give, take the word that I'm telling you right now and tell them, you're responsible. I, th I think it's a stretch to bring that to us and say, well, we're responsible if we don't, we're responsible for their death if we don't say something. See where I'm getting at? I'm responsible for obedience to tell them. But I'm not responsible. Well, Alan, you, know, you, should, have, you should have witnessed to that guy in the diner on such and such a day and because you didn't, he's in hell now. Because had you witnessed to him, he would be saved. That, that's, I don't think that's biblical. That's not a biblical view. Now, am I responsible to witness when I can't? Sure I am. And God holds me to that. And God wants me to be a witness. But I'm not responsible for them to not believe. I'm not responsible if they do believe. Because I, I know a lot of people use that Jeremiah passage. You got to be careful with that. Because quite honestly, if that was true, what should we all be doing? Preaching all the time. Yeah, not sleep. I mean, I dare not sleep because if I sleep, I might not witness to somebody who's going to go to hell because I didn't tell them. You know, I dare not eat because, if, you know, while I'm eating my McDonald's hamburger, I could be witnessing. I mean, we take it to those extremes. That's not, that's not what it's about. God wants us to be a witness, a testimony, and we are to do that. But I'm not responsible if they believe. I'm not responsible if they aren't. I can't save anybody. You realize that. I can't save anybody. And I can't keep an elect person out of heaven. And I can't drag a non-elect person in. That's a work of God. Christ said, I will build my church. I will do it. That's my responsibility. You're responsible to witness. And I will use your testimony to bring the elect. But it's my job to get the elect in. It's my job to do that. It's God's responsibility to save whom he will save. Pardon? And that's the wonderful thing. And remember... I mean, you want a great illustration is think of Esther. Remember when Esther went to Mordecai? 
and, and she says, you know, well, maybe the king will kill me. You know, Mordecai tells her, says, you know, if you don't do something, God will save his people. Right? He told her. I think it's um, Esther 4.8 or 8.4. If you don't do anything, God will save his people. But you're going to miss out on a blessing. Yeah. And maybe God raised you up for this. You know? That's the way to look at it. It is. Because you're 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 doing what you're making God happy by doing that which He wants you to do. But it's not your responsibility to bring somebody to Christ. You can't save a person. You can't cause a person to not be saved. All you can do is be a testimony. Now God's going to hold you responsible for how good of a testimony you are. But God will save His elect. One of the biggest problems of witnessing is the me focus, you know, because I always used to think I can't, you know, you're like you're responsible. It's really not you. You're a tool. Like you're a tool. Are, you you're to be used. And once then you get that concept, I think you begin to understand it more. It's, you're not really doing it, you know, as you. <laughs> no, it's Christ. It's God who's bringing them. And the point is, you want to be. You want to be part of the plan. I want to be part of God's plan. Yeah. They're responsible in a sense. They're responsible to take God's truth and minister to that. And God's going to hold them responsible to how well they they model and and lead the people of God. God's going to hold them responsible for how well they did that. All right. So there is a, a responsibility. And quite honestly, God's going to hold us responsible for how our witness is. He really is. Now, we're not responsible in the sense that it's our fault they didn't get to heaven. But we are responsible in the sense that we did not do a good job in... Yeah. Yep. We are to be an... Ex People are to look at us and see there's a difference. They're to see that there's a difference in our lives. You know, um, and you know, sometimes it is the silliest thing. I was reminded this week, and um, there, there's a man I got I got the Bible for him here. He came to our Bible study at at Moen, and I don't think he's a Christian. Name's Jim. You can pray for him. But um, we were we were talking there, and he said he mentioned something, I lead the Bible study there, and he mentioned something, he said, yeah, I was really, I don't know how it came up, but in, in, the, in our Bible study, he said, I was really impressed with Alan one day because I remember we were on a trip, this was about 10 years ago, we went to um, uh, Dallas. And he said, I remember when we were in the airport and we were ready to fly out, there was a girl that was really upset, she was reading her Bible, and you went over and, and helped her find a passage and, 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 and talked to her, and he said, that really impressed me. And I'm thinking, I forgot all about that. <laughs> you know? And uh, knowing me, I'm out of character to go talk to a stranger, much less a woman in the airport. But she had her Bible, and she was trying to, you know, she was, she was flipping through it, trying to find something. And it looked like she was trying to find a passage. So, you know, I asked her, you know, are you looking for a passage? And she told me what it was she was looking for, and I was able to show her where it was. And, you know, was, and he said, that really impressed me. And I never knew that. 
one of the silly little things, you know, you don't even think anything of it. And yet, it was something that impressed him to the point, to this day, he remembers it. And, wow, you know. So you never know what your influence is. You really don't. You, you really don't know what it is. And a lot of times, you're not going to know what it is until you get to heaven, how you might have impacted somebody. You know, we don't know that. Just be that. Yeah, let your light shine. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's part of conflict. Christ is saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's most, everybody knows that verse. And whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. How did God love the world? He felt good about it? Emotional high? He gave. What's the, what's the expression of love? Sacrifice. Yeah, and that's interesting. You know, you know, a guy says, you know, I love you so much. You know, I'll, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd buy any car for you. I'd cross the biggest desert. I would do anything. And if it's not raining tonight, I'll be over. You know, it's like, what is love? Love is self-sacrifice. Love is, if you love someone, there's nothing you wouldn't do for that person. Do you love God? That solves the giving issue, right? Forget the tithe business. That's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is, if I love God, what am I going to do? I'm going to give until it hurts, right? Because I love Him. I'm not going to think about, you know, oh, I can't give that money. I'm going to give whatever because I love God. The motivation is the love for Him. I'm going to, because the natural expression of love is to give. How did God love the world? He gave. How did Christ love the world? He died. That's how He loved the world. It's sacrificially. You see on the news where that uh, reporter from Channel 5 gave a kidney. He was going to give it to one of his family members, but it wasn't a match. And he gave one of his kidneys. He donated one of his kidneys. And I'm thinking, you know, that takes a lot of willingness to give to do something mm -hmm. like that. That's sacrificial giving. Mm -hmm. so What's well, really so sacrificial is giving both. Yeah. You know, and God gave, God gave. Why? So that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Why did God send Christ into the world? So that he could die for us, that the world could be redeemed. And why did Christ have to die? Well, what is the greatest expression of love that God could have given us? To die for us. There's no greater love. That's it. And why is that needed? Because that needs to snap us out of our own self-introspection and to realize that he died for me. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You don't need to, you don't need to do anything to be condemned. Just don't do anything. <laughs> Left to yourself, you will not believe. It's the work of God for you to believe. And this is the condemnation that the light has come of the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be, made, be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds might be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Here's the bottom line of what he's saying. God came into the world and gave us light. And this is very important to understand. Okay? 
And if we don't live up to that light, that's our fault. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I thought you said that if you don't, if God doesn't do a work in your heart, you're going to reject him. Yeah, yeah, I did say that. You're responsible for that. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you are responsible for your own reprobation because you will not believe. I don't understand that. You're not supposed to understand that. Just take it for what it says. The light comes in the world. And, and this is part of God's judgment. Part of God's judgment on the unbeliever is, I came, I gave you the light, you saw the light, you saw me, you saw, and you didn't believe. You would not believe. You, you refused. The Bible always puts the onus of unbelief on the individual. And the thing that the Bible, I think, teaches very, very clearly, if God does not intervene, every single one of us will refuse to believe. Because it is not within our fallen nature to believe. We can't do that. We can't decide for God. He has to do the work. And here you see the human perspective. If You're already condemned. You, if you don't believe, you're already condemned. And God brought the light in, and, and that light condemns you even more because now you see it and you don't believe. God holds you responsible for that. But if you come to the light, and why would you come to the light? Because you're elect. Then your deeds are exposed. Why does the world not want... Stop and think about it. Why does the world not want God for who God is? It exposes their, life. Exposes their sin. And what do they not want to do? They don't want to give it up. That's right. And until you're willing to give it up, you can't be saved. As long as you want to hang on to something in your life, you can't be saved. you got to say, Uncle, I give up. God hangs on to me. But God, God enables me to let go. And what you see in the world, you see people say, you know, God says that I have to do black. I don't want to do that. I want my own way. I want, and what is sin? Sin is exaltation of self over God, right? I don't want God's way, I want my way. I want to do my own thing, I want to live my own life. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. So that's why people won't come to God. You don't want anybody, all of us in here by and large don't want people telling us what to do. You just don't. You don't like that. And when you come to God, you must look God in the eye and say, it's my fault. I've sinned. I think that's really what he wants from, that's one of the, That is, the re that is required. Because we need to realize that the relationship between God and I, God and us are broken. And unless we're willing to admit our fault, how can you be saved? You can't. And the only way you can admit your fault is God's got to make you understand that it is your fault. That's regeneration, repentance. But I don't believe you can come to Jesus and not repent. There are people who say, well, you know, just accept Him as Savior and we'll worry about the repentance and the Lordship stuff later on. No, 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 no. You, you have to repent. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You, you have to acknowledge it. You think it's also a growth? You know, because, you know, the more you learn... Oh, absolutely. You realize just how far off... Absolutely. <laughs> I, believe, I believe this. When you come to Jesus Christ, you take Him as Lord. You don't understand what that means. None of us do. Does anybody really understand what it means that Jesus is Lord? No, none of us have, none of us have sorted that out yet. 
But what, what are we? We are willing to admit that. We are willing to submit to Him. We are willing to give it all to Him. We don't understand the implications of it, but there's a willingness to, to do it. And where there is no willingness to submit and no willingness to surrender, there's, real no, there's no real repentance. That's why you don't lower the bar. When the rich young ruler came to Christ and said, what must I do to be saved? Christ did not lower the bar. He ratcheted up. Oh, go sell all your property and come follow me and you'll be in. Now, is that the answer? Well, no. <clears throat> what was that guy not willing to do? He was not willing to do whatever it takes. And Christ hit it. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to forsake all to follow him? The answer is no, he doesn't want you. And it says here, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. Now we have the Judean ministry here. This is the early Judean ministry. In the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Anan near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we know when it says, when was John thrown into prison? Well, remember he preached against Philip, Herod Philip, and was tossed into prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Purification has to do with the baptism, the repentance and that. And what are they saying? What are these guys saying? Yeah, he's, he's, he's muscling in on your message. Yeah. Right, there's some jealousy there. And how did John respond? Man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. What's he saying? Look. The disciples I have are given to me from heaven. There's no place, there's no place in the ministry for, for, for jealousy. That's right. Hey, the guy next door has a bigger church. Well, great, wonderful. Their people are coming to the Lord. Hallelujah. Wonderful. Well, they're not coming to your church. Well, that's okay. Are they coming to Christ? That's all that matters. But see, our little flesh gets in there and says, well, you know, why am I the big shot? Why am I not the guy at the big church? And, that's, and John was humble. John realized, look, it's not me. In fact, he chides his disciples. John understood that his, his ministry was coming to an end, too. No, John understood what his ministry was. It was to point to Christ. Now Christ is there, and some of John's disciples are following Christ, and John's not getting all upset about that, because that's what he was there for in the first place. Well, After all, John is saying, that which I have, I have because God gave it to me. He said, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. And I'm rejoicing when the bridegroom comes. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase. I must decrease. John was not too bothered about that. John was, and, that, and that's something to think. Why, you know, there are, there are men who really go off the deep end because they don't have big churches. You know, your church is as big as what God has given you. 
I remember John MacArthur said, you know, that he has some guys come with the little churches, and John says, you know, do you want to be responsible for 3,000 people? And he said, often they say no. And he said, well, <laughs> be thankful for that. Do your ministry. Don't worry, you know, and that's, that's Paul. You know, Paul's in prison. You see, you know, some people preach Christ of jealousy. He says, I don't care. Christ is preached. That's all that matters to me. When you have a proper view of Christ, you don't care who gets the credit. That's, that's the wonderful thing. You don't care who gets the credit. You don't care who the light is shining on. You could care less. As long as Christ is being preached, his name is being uplifted, that's all that matters. Nothing else matters. Yeah. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, and he has testified, no one receives his testimony. He has received his testimony and certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. What's he saying? Christ came from where? Heaven. And he's preaching the words of God, and you don't listen to him. Listen to him. Don't need to listen to me. He must increase. I must decrease. And he's basically saying, you know what? I didn't come down from heaven. But he did. Therefore, who should you be listening to? Him. That's right. He had a proper view of this. Don't you think he recognized the end of his ministry? He possibly did. Now, did he have doubts later on? Yeah, because Christ was not throwing the Romans out, right? Yeah. And you got to understand, the entire mentality of Israel was the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. And that's what John understood. John understood Israel needs to return to repentance to God and the kingdom would be there. And that was true. But God knew that it wouldn't happen, didn't he? Because God ordained that it wouldn't happen. Did Israel respond in belief? No, they rejected. And God postponed the kingdom to a later time. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He's acknowledging Christ as the Son of God. And He says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is John saying, if you believe the Son, you have everlasting life. And what do you do to believe the Son? You believe what He said. After all, that's all faith is. You just believe God. Okay, God said it. Okay, I believe that. I go along with that. No, I don't know. In my Bible, that last verse, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Well, pardon? And as we has that, I'll have to look up the Greek word there. Um, I think the way to understand that is, what did the Son command? Believe. Right. And if you don't believe, you don't obey. Yeah. And all the time he says, you know, you do what I say, right. then you're on my side. Right. And who can obey? Who can truly obey God? What? The elect who are believers. They can obey. If you're not elect, you can't obey God. You can't please God. Could you merge into the wrath? Pardon? Wrath. The wrath of God abides on him. I think that's temporal wrath and eternal wrath. 
And you got to understand what wrath is. What is wrath? God, when we think of wrath, we think of God as explosive anger, right? Somebody's wrathful, they get red in the face and they're throwing things and all that. That's not what wrath is. God's wrath is his automatic and, how do I want to put it? Automatic and, and, uh, not final. I'm trying to think of the word to use here. It's his automatic response to sin. Involuntary response to sin in his presence. It's a characteristic of God. It's one of his characteristics. God is love. God is wrath. It's an essential component of who God is. When you bring sin into God's presence, you see God's wrath. Okay? So God's wrath abides on them. God's wrath abides on them in the temporal sense and in the eternal sense. Okay? Does that make any sense? Yeah. Romans, Romans 1 really brings yeah. that out. Yeah, the wrath of God is not something he works up. Yeah. The wrath of God is not something he works up. The wrath of God is an automatic response to sin when it comes into his presence. Opposite to love. Right? That's not the opposite of love. No. It's his response to sin, his hatred, his holy hatred and aversion, and I don't know how else to put it. It's, it's an essential characteristic of God. So his attribute is love. And so wrath. The wrath. Right. And that, that, that wrath will be reflected in eternal wrath in the lake of fire. You gotta understand how, see we don't, you know, as fallen human beings, we don't understand the holiness of God and how holy He is. We just don't understand that. God, God is so holy that any, any blemish in His presence, it brings an automatic response from Him that, that against that unholiness. He can't. You can't. And you know, someday you're going to hate it as bad as he does. Yeah, it's a tough one. Hey, what about verse 34? When it's talking about what Jesus was given, he said the Spirit wasn't given to him by man. Could he? Okay. Well, let's think about that. In what sense was the Spirit not given to Christ by measure? He has all of it. He has all of it. Yeah, but so there's no measure to what he has. So how is the Spirit given to us? By measure? Do you have the full Spirit in you? The full manifestation of the Spirit? No, I don't. Do you? No. And it's because of our frailty, our humanness, we, we couldn't handle it. I'm saying that's kind of like... The same spirit that rose Christ that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, but we do not experience the full power of the Spirit in our lives because of our fallenness and our sinfulness. Christ did not have that, so the full manifestation of the Spirit was present in His life. So maybe my measure is like a measure, like you know, like half a glass. That might be a crude way to think of it. Yes. Are some people more spirit-filled than others? Yeah. So that's, is, is that where the, the term of like being 
filled with the Holy Spirit. No, filled. Baptism is different. Don't get that confused. You're not a charismatic. No, I mean, because you know. Baptism means you're placed in the body of Christ. That's that's what that means. That's different. Filling. All of us are filled with the Spirit, but but we're filled with the Spirit only in the sense of how much of us does the Spirit control? In the sense of Christ, it was everything. There was not any aspect of His life that was not under the power and influence of the Spirit. With us, it's always less than that because of our fallenness, our humanity, our sinfulness. Spouses. Yeah. We're never there. Same temptation. Same temptation. Yeah. So what about the temple Jesus today would love? The wrath? The same, the same wrath of God? What's that? The, the, the upside down... The the anger that he 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 was so incensed by the by the dishonor that was given to his father. So is it equal that was the yeah. Mm-hmm. Now he did not, he's you know, he, he he did not smoke them all right there and turn them into grease spots on the floor, but he could have, yeah, yeah. you know. And, and and there's a sense in which the Bible says God's wrath is tempered. God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness, but he does is not cause immediate judgment. He holds it back. But someday it will fall on the unbeliever. So we got through, we're on schedule. Isn't that an amazing thing? So all right. Well let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time and for being here and helping us to understand this. I pray that we would ponder these truths and thank you for this word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.